0: Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 98. When we left off last episode, it was the end of Operation Modula and Cuban leader Fidel Castro had begun to consider a negotiated solution to the Namibian and Angolan War. There was a sideshow planned before the next major op into Angola in 1987. The SADF Top Ross had finally decided to try and cut off the logistics route west of Quito, kwanavali through to Menong. This was also a period in the war where the South African generals began to get more and more involved in the tactical decisions. Some of the upcoming battles were going to involve the SED forces creeping ahead, similar to the fighting in World War I at times. Fapla had not folded and run. Commanders on the ground said that the enemy had often fought with a degree of determination that drew grudging respect from the South Africans. It's time to consider Jan Hochart's marauders, and an approach that perhaps in hindsight was about two months too late, but better late than never. The Commandant had been sent back to Rundu in late October to put together a secret mission to head west of Quito where the road runs east-west, but the rivers run north-south. That means there are quite a few points that are strategic because there are bridges and drifts and at least five places where a motivated and well-structured team of saboteurs or attackers could cause mayhem. Convoys of vehicles were arriving in Quito virtually daily, some with 300 or more trucks and tankers and support machines, bringing supplies and equipment. Each convoy that made the trip safely from Manong 200 kilometers to the west was greeted by cheers, and each was a knife in the back of the SEDF morale. Experienced men were wondering why the SEDF continued to pursue this creeping logic, even those who became aware of the initial outreach of Cuban leader Fidel Castro which began in late 1987. Good koop is dear koop. Peace meal is no way to eat an army, particularly one that is three times your size and being resupplied daily, and one that has the luxury of air superiority. Militarily, the South African leadership had reverted to a kind of total war lunacy. May the toughest survive. The hardliners, the bitter enders were in command. That's all very well, and yes, this is hindsight, but for thousands of years, men and women have fought And for thousands of years, there have been basic principles underpinning what you do in any situation in a war, whether guerrilla or conventional. Flirt with those rules and you're asking for trouble. For example, launching troops in a direct attack on an enemy in a fixed and firm position is not a justifiable strategy unless you control the means by which that battle is fought, you have air superiority, or you have profoundly vital intelligence. Another principle that goes back almost as far as human memory is that if you are going to upset an enemy's equilibrium by attacking, ensure that their plans are awry before you begin that attack. They must be confused and then terrified or vice versa. They must be in doubt of their own side. Their morale must be suffering from weeks of barrages and they definitely need to be starving or close to collapse. Vapla was experiencing none of these symptoms. The SADF handbook on mechanized warfare had apparently been thrown out in the last months of this war. You reduce resistance in your enemy by exploiting movement and surprise. The South Africans east of Quito were plodding along, hardly moving and repeating old ideas. The officers I mentioned last episode, the Van the Fries, Hocharts, the Hartleafs, the Mullers, were in an invidious position. Everything they knew about the history of fighting, plus the history of fighting in southern Angola, was being flouted. Frustration grew. At least Hochart now had an opportunity to sow some mayhem and possibly upend Foppler's equilibrium in early December 1987. It was a fairly audacious plan, no doubt about it. Finally, he had some opportunity to cut the hamstrings of Foppler's powerful delivery leg. A full-blooded attack was required, and Hochart, unfortunately, was not going to get that. It was piecemeal, but it was mobile. His brief was to plan a secret mission aiming at the Manong Quanavali Road west of the Quito River to disrupt the enemy's logistics. The main attack on the town was still going to take place from the east. Hochart was also told only minimum casualties will be permitted. Three two battalion units had been tied down east of the town with Commandant Hartsleif's Combat Group Bravo, but the winding up of Operation Modular meant these could now be redeployed with an unfortunate proviso. They were going to be re-equipped and rested first, then allowed to shift only in mid-January, and that was too late for Hochart's marauding plan. Hochart had begun destabilizing FAPTA's routes by early December. He turned to 120 men only from 101 Battalion, made up of soldiers from Ovumberland. The mobile rocket launcher battery was shifted from Hotsliff to Hochart. He scouted around Fort Buffalo, 3-2 Battalion's headquarters, and managed to pull together a special support company, with 81mm mortars, jeep-mounted 106 millimeter anti-tank guns and Milan anti-tank missiles. Special Force Rekis from 1 and 5 rekkie also joined his elite team. This was a very high-risk operation, said Hohart. With real determination, the enemy could have cut us off there with a battalion they had in Kayundo and Barshalonga To improve chances of success... Intelligence gathering was vital, particularly about the FAPLA units stationed along the Manong-Quito-Quanavali road and down the adjacent rivers. The Rekis were relaying information constantly back to Two Zero Brigade's HQ, usually based in their observation posts or OPs up to a month at a time. Some of these took days to reach on foot as the Rekis were forced to circle minefields and enemy patrols. Team 2 of the Rekis had kept Quito-Quanavali's airfield under close scrutiny, led by Sergeant Martin Smith, When the enemy moved, Smith would call down the G5 and G6 artillery fire onto the runway. Most of the most valuable equipment had been moved away from there by this time. The MiGs were now stationed at Menong, but helicopters and small aircraft flew in from time to time. On the 27th of November, they hit the jackpot after spotting trucks that seemed to be entering a large underground bunker on a regular basis near the airport. They noted this on a map, and then radioed the coordinates to the artillery commanders, who fired a salvo at the bunker. The fifth shot hit the bunker's entrance, and then there was a massive explosion. The bunker was burning, and rockets and other ammunition began to go off. Eventually, a giant hole, a kind of sinkhole, appeared in the ground above the bunker, and a mushroom cloud grew thousands of feet into the air. The South Africans had killed Russian logistics commander Colonel Andrei Gorb, we had spent a year in Angola and avoided death until then. Igor Shadakin hunkered down with 2-1 Brigade, said that everyone respectfully had called him uncle, as the verse of Vysotsky says, death selects the best and pulls them out one by one. Only the good die young, they say. The SADF reorganized their forces at this time. The three combat groups Alpha, Bravo and Charlie reverted to their real names, Alpha to 61 Mech, Bravo to 3-2 Battalion, and Charlie to Forsy. Three-two returned to Buffalo, and a second ulifant tank squadron was then sent into Angola, manned by Citizen Force soldiers from the Pretoria Regiment, under command of Major Wim Kroble. The Omana, as they were known, were on their way. The first squadron was now made up of fresh conscripts from the School of Armour in Bloemfontein, under Major Tim Radman. One of the replacements for 61 Mech wrote of his shock at seeing the men on their way home to Clyde Out, We'd spent three months in Angola. They were wearing filthy overalls, their hair was long, they had beards. These guys look like animals! What the hell have they been doing up here? said one. As for the rattles, they were battered. Most needed fixing of some sort or another before returning to combat. This meant that 61 Meccan and Forsyth, along with the artillery and tank squadrons, numbered just over 2,000 men and 24 tanks. Facing them in the coming battles would be at least five brigades east of Quito, three more brigades in the west, around 8,000 troops. The Angolans also had at least 40 tanks, which had survived the battering of Operation Modula. The Angolans had been forced to recruit more troops, though, and rushed them south. Many had not been properly trained, and apparently the calibre of fighting man on Fapla's side began to drop. Offsetting this was a far cleverer approach to fighting the South Africans. FAPLA had already shown some steel in previous confrontations. They had deployed their mechanized units in a more mobile fashion, moving them around the battlefield. The Cubans and the Russians were also more hands-on. The Angolans set up their defenses in three lines stretching north to south, something like the western front, one behind the other. Near the Chambinga high ground that had caused the SAD of so much trouble, 2-1 Brigade was based in the north, 5-9 Brigade in the middle, and 2-5 Brigade in the south. Behind these were 16 Brigade, 66 Brigade in the middle at the Quito Bridge with 25 tanks, and 3 Tank Battalion in the south. The 3rd Defence Line lay west of the river where 14 Brigade waited. Cuban artillery units moved into position and they would become a serious threat as the South Africans advanced from the east in the new year. Luckily for Commandant Hochart, however, there was only one infantry company deployed to the south and southwest of Quito, Quanavali. The Angolans had made one more major change, an initiative that was to complicate matters for the South Africans. They had stopped using their radio communications as the main contact between units and reverted to the old-fashioned telephone. The brigades were close to each other, so laying these lines made sense, and the SADF did not cotton onto this old-fashioned system until a little later. FABLO had come to the conclusion that the SADF was far too well informed every time they radioed their position. The Russians believed it was an inside job. Someone was relaying information. But the reality was the SADF comsop was world class. They had broken codes early on. Furthermore, FAPLA appeared to trust the radio encryption so commanders would often converse in Portuguese directly without resorting to codes. Waiting southwest of Quito was Unita's first regular battalion who controlled most of the approaches to the strategic road between Manong and Quito They were the most able of Jonas Savimbi's battalions and moved quickly and often at night. Soon, Commandant Hochart's marauders were moving in the bush between Kaundo and Baishalonga, breaking up into small groups, moving from point to point. Sometimes they laid up for 48 hours and then sent recce teams ahead to establish places that were ideal for stopping and resting. During the day... They lay under camouflage and lit no fires, protected by dense forest as they went. They had no chance of drop-offs by aircraft and were set to spend up to two months in place. This meant they were travelling heavy, moving tons of equipment and ammunition, food and fuel, dropping these in big caches that were guarded by UNITA. The move north took many days, and while Hohart advanced, the SA Air Force made several raids on the convoys. These were never enough to stop the advancing trucks. In one raid observed by the rekkies, four mirages swept in on the 22nd of December, hitting a static convoy of 318 vehicles, including 35 tanks at Longa. Only eight of these were hit. Publis' defensive tactics against air attack was improving. So, too, their anti-aircraft batteries. It began to rain in December, buckets full every day, which worked to the South Africans' advantage because it covered their tracks and meant that the Angolans would have to stick to the roads or get stuck bundu bashing, and their air cover was limited. Fapla then upped their convoy defences to almost a complete brigade that travelled with the convoys, around 1,000 men. Hohart had only 120 men facing these, let alone ducking the MiGs and other Angolan aircraft that would sometimes swoop overhead. His marauders sat alongside the Manong Road. Both sides were using a colonial-era navigation aid, the kilometre stones that had been placed there by the Portuguese. Sergeant Pete Fourie and his team of three Grekis from 32 battalion spent two months alongside this road. Sometimes they were only a few hundred meters away, watching hundreds of vehicles drive past. The bush was extraordinarily thick. Fapla's soldiers hesitated, leaving the road to search deep into this vegetation. We would sit there sending statistical information on a convoy by radio, how long it was, where the front car was, the position of the back marker, the types of vehicles. Then our guys would come in with the mirages, said Furi. Logistics also proved to be a challenge. The landmines they used stopped a convoy but only damaged a single vehicle. Hochart wanted to lay much more deadly automatic ambushes, but these had to come by truck to the logistics centre 100 kilometres south, and we carried null. The MiGs scouted constantly, Hohart had to split his material into two dense thickets near the Bambi and Gimbi streams about 30 kilometers south of the Monong Road. UNITA and the Marauders worked closely together. This was regarded as one of the more successful joint ventures by the South Africans and the Angolan rebel movement. Eventually Hohart was in a position to launch direct attacks at the road itself, deploying eight of the mobile rocket launchers so that they covered 50 kilometers of road between the rivers of Kuatir and Longa. He was facing a strategic decision, however, if he allowed these to fire, then the Angolans would know that there were South Africans close by and perhaps launch an outflanking brigade from the east to trap them. So he used the spotters and passed on their coordinates to Unita's 120mm mortar sections, which began to hit the convoys, in liaison with the Reiki mining team's and the SAF was bombing raids. Hochart still hadn't decided when to launch a ground attack, but watched in admiration as the SAF was deployed their bomb-tossing techniques from low altitude, which managed to thwart the MiG-23s prowling at higher altitudes. These planes were usually heading from Manong to the east of Quito to bomb the South African forces huddled there, preparing for the upcoming assault or flying back from the bombing raids. Hanging around at very high altitude were the top-cover MiG-23s, and their missiles outmatched anything that the South Africans had. So the SAF was was sneaking around, hoping to avoid the vast array of AA guns and missile systems across the region. By January, the SAF was raised and inflicted a great deal of damage, striking in the early morning or slipping in under the MiGs flying heavy with bombs. And so the consistent attacks paid off on the 9th of January when four mirages caught a 170-vehicle convoy protected by FAPLA's 8th Brigade just west of the Kuatir River. Forty vehicles were hit and burning, and then a thunderstorm built up at the right time and provided Hohart with the opportunity to fire his Valkyrie MRL rockets for the first time. Fapler had lost a great deal of men in that convoy, but the battered group moved slower and approached a base along the road at Longa, which is around 100 kilometres out of Menong. As the thunderstorm broke, Unita fired off 120mm mortars, and Hochart brought his MRLs out into the open for the first time. They now had more than the usual five minutes of firing before they had to be scooted back into the bush. By the time the MRLs stopped firing, the Reckies counted 60 vehicles that were on fire. It was now open season the SADF units firing constantly on these convoys, which continued despite the battering they were taking. UNITA also began to hit the convoys with ground attacks, slowing down the flow of equipment. However, they never managed to stop the supplies completely. Hohat then left the marauders on the 10th of January, and Commandant Hartsleif and his 3-2 battalion regulars slotted into their position. The secret op was going well, they thought. It hadn't achieved all its objectives, but he hadn't lost any of the important MRLs. There were deaths on the SADF side, however. A team of national servicemen operating a 20mm anti-aircraft gun at a rear logistics base had seen the wreckage of a FAPLA MiG during the days of waiting around and decided to inspect it. But the MiG wreckage was booby-trapped, and two died immediately in the explosion, a third lost his arms and his sight. Operation Hooper which had originally been planned for mid-December had shifted to February, and Hatzliff and Hochart had their doubts about the new plan. They wanted the G6s to be brought up so that these deadly guns could bombard the road. Three of the G6s had been used at the end of Modula from the northeast of Quito Conavali, as I mentioned last episode, shocking the defenders, but one of these had already been sent to an international arms exhibition in Chile. Large Soviet planes were flying into Menong, and these were ripe targets for the G6s. The big Aleutian 72 transports were lumbering beasts and UNITA was finding it difficult to hit these with their American Stinger missiles. A UNITA colonel then managed to shoot down an MI-24 hind gunship near Manong but he used a bog-standard RPG-7 to do that, not a multi-million dollar American-made top-of-the-range bit of kit. It was politics once more that led to Operation Hooper's delay, along with the reality of having to send many of the national servicemen home at the end of their two years' stints. Originally earmarked for Saturday, 13th December, and that day the UN Security Council unanimously demanded that the SADF withdraw from Angola. Defense Minister Magnus Malan had admitted in November that the South Africans were in fact in the country assisting UNITA. That caused a furore, but it was ironic because it was only the less informed South African citizens who didn't know this at the time. Britain's MI6 intelligence unit had apparently told the South Africans that what they called the witless conduct of the public relations campaign was doing Pretoria damage, so they had better come clean. They are notoriously introvert and secretive. It's very damaging. They're not spelling it out to the outside world, said the operative. Foreign Affairs Minister Pak said the fact that Cubans and Russians were now fighting meant that South Africa had to get involved. Of course, the Cubans and Russians said they'd got involved because of the opposite. Then Pretoria stumbled again in its PR campaign. They said only four SADF soldiers had died in the air raid in the early November battles. It was actually seven who died in ground fighting. Some of the families of the men, of course, knew the truth and were somewhat shocked by Pretoria's fibs. Milan spoke about Cuban and Russian offensives and why South Africa needed to get involved, but someone had forgotten to brief Jonas Savimbi, who at the same time was telling international journalists that no South Africans were involved and it was his professional group of soldiers killing Fapla. Talk about a right mess. By now it was 11 South Africans dead since the 9th of November, dozens more wounded, 2,000 South Africans had been inside Angola. Now they were listening to Savimbi say There has been no South African intervention. We've had aid from South Africa, but not men fighting at our side. Meanwhile, the plans for Operation Hooper were being fine-tuned, but disease was beginning to cause chaos amongst the SADF. More than a hundred had been casevaced out of southern Angola because of illness, and two men were about to die from a virulent form of cerebral malaria. More about that next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, you can head over to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.